So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. I spent so many hours on the road and so many conferences, and and a lot of them, look, I look back, oh my God, a ton ton of them were dead ends. Probably 80% of them were dead ends, but 20% of them added value. And you start to get smarter over what actually works and what doesn't. And so every year, frankly, every month, Elizabeth and I sit down and have what we call our meeting of no. But we go through everything that we're working on, everything that's on the calendar and say, okay, over the last month, what was really of value and what wasn't? What did we learn? And how are we going to get smarter with our time going forward? And then an annual meeting. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Carolyn Rods. Carolyn, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to hear about your background and what you did at JP Morgan, but let's start off with tell people about Alice. Yes, I'm Carolyn. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Hello Alice, which is really the answer to what I wish I would have had when I started my very first business now over 15 years ago, which is kind of crazy. But I was really lost and had no idea what running a company actually entailed uh, and learned a ton of lessons the hard way. And over all those years, I, I failed with a company. I started another company and sold it. Each of those paths, frankly, was really different in the way and a lot of the nuances of the business, but I was tackling the same thing. So Hello Alice is, is helping to solve that goal of guiding entrepreneurs along their own unique journey of starting, growing, um, and succeeding in entrepreneurship. And, and can you give us some of, the, some of the success stats of what you guys have achieved so far? Yes, we support now a community of over 340,000 small business owners across the United States. We've deployed over $15 million in grant funding over the last 12 months to entrepreneurs. We have helped those entrepreneurs achieve milestones from how to hire their first employee to how to get an SBA loan to how to go raise venture capital or secure their first 100 customers, all kinds of things. The entrepreneurs that are on our platform are actually 23 times more likely to achieve the goals that they've laid out for themselves because of the accountability and the resources and and the doors that are opened along the way for them. Well, my first compliment for you is on your, your UX. You know, I went on there and signed up for our business and just very intuitive, very quick onboarding and just felt very natural. So good job on that. Thank you. We're always refining. So much, much (laughs) more to come. It's always fun. I feel like I live in six months ahead on product. And so it's fun to see what's coming around the corner. Yeah. So when you, when you give that stat 23 times more likely, where, where does that come from? So we track when basically the speed at which entrepreneurs are achieving their goals. And so we can see 
if an entrepreneur has laid out a goal for themselves, how much faster are they doing against the baseline of our community that, that hasn't tackled a goal? And so we're seeing that whenever they set something out, we're holding them accountable through um, emails, through challenges that they're trying to achieve, through mentorship that supports them along the way, interactive workshops and guides and all of these tools that are helping to say, look, here's the next step. Here's what you need to get done. And then when they finish and complete it, they're acknowledging that they finished that milestone versus the rest of the community. If they're not engaging in those tools, we're like, all right, have you done this? You said you wanted to do it. You haven't done anything. Have you actually done it? And it, you know, understandably takes them much longer to, to actually get those things done. Oh, that makes sense. So why don't you talk a little bit about your time at JP Morgan and, and your, the company you sold? And then let's talk some more about Alice. So I worked in investment banking at JP Morgan, primarily in M&A and partly in New York, partly here in Houston. It was a great building block for me in my own career in that I got to meet incredible CEOs and founders of billion dollar businesses that had started their companies from scratch in many of those situations. And it was so eye-opening to me. I'd been around entrepreneurs. My father was an entrepreneur. My grandparents were entrepreneurs. But it was so encouraging to me to see these massive companies and realize that they were no different. And the journeys that they took were actually not very different than the journeys that my father took or that my grandparents took. They just took it to a new level. And so it, it inspired me to say, you know what? I can actually build a business that's much larger than every, anything I had ever imagined. And, and it helped me set my sights, I think, a lot higher um, than I probably would have otherwise. So I'm really grateful for the exposure that I had and frankly, the network that I had and also the understanding that you know whether you're trying to borrow a $25,000 small business loan or whether you're trying to borrow a $100 million credit facility, the fundamentals of business are largely the same. What, what industries were your parents and grandparents in? My father ran a commercial insurance company and my grandparents ran a number of businesses, but their primary one was one of the largest cookie and bread factories in Bolivia. I think it's where my oh, love really? came from. <laughs> nice. What, what kind of advantages do you think you have by, by having that background? How did that help you in your career? I grew up seeing the highs and lows of entrepreneurship. I did not go into it, you know, with rose colored glasses thinking that it was this wonderful glamorous world of freedom and and that success was a given my my father actually struggled quite a bit with his business and i remember the conversations that my parents had as we were growing up he ultimately built an incredibly successful business that he was able to sell and and built a great life for for our family but it wasn't i think even more so now i can appreciate the late nights that you know when i was 10 years old, I don't think I fully realized what was going on. But in looking back, I'm like, ah, oh, there were some stressful times that that he went through. So it was eye-opening to me and that I, I think I came in realizing the hard work that it would take. From my grandparents' perspective, I mean, I think that the tangible part of that business was really helpful. I got to see, you know, cookie dough being mixed and the conveyor belts going through in the factory and the factory workers coming in to get the cookies to sell and, and the kiosks in the streets and and it was such a tangible business that it, it felt real in a way that my dad's business never did. He worked in insurance and it was all sort of financial and on paper and on computers. So I think that was really helpful for me to realize that it, it is doable, but there are lots of moving pieces that have to fit together. And, and again, I think just a constant daily grind that, that entrepreneurship is. You know, it makes me think about, I wish I could remember which comedian this is, but a comedian that everybody knows. <laughs> And I can't remember if it was Jimmy Kimmel or somebody else, but somehow they had been able to, in high school for their high school newspaper, interview like some really great comedians, like 
like big, big names at the time, you know, Adam Sandler and these kind of people as a high school kid, right? And saying, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. And he got given this advice, like, well, here's the thing. It's a way better story if I knew who it was, right? But, <laughs> but he said, like, so here's what's going to happen. You're going to be terrible for two years, and that's okay. And nobody's going to laugh, but that's how, you, that's how you get funny. And so I remember them talking on this, I think it was a podcast or YouTube video about, like, I was terrible. I got booed off stage or whatever, but I wasn't shocked. I knew, like, I, like, had accepted this was part of the, this was part of the process, you know? And what an advantage going into it, right? Yeah, I think when the fear of failure is gone, it opens up so much opportunity. And I mentioned that my first business, I am so grateful. I mean, I think about the lessons that I learned that helped me today. And most of them came from that failed business entity. That The irony is the seven years of my successful business are a little bit of a blur. And there were certainly things that I learned and things that I applied. But at the end of the day, most of my learnings that I fall back on today are back from that first company. Well, and I really appreciated your TED Talk talking about that and being open about like, you know, feeling shame and not wanting to tell the people that you were closest to and, and all those kind of things. I think any of us who've been in entrepreneurship long enough have, have experienced those feelings. And I thought it was- oh, I, I lost my pride and ego a, a long form. time ago. <laughs> so, no, I think it's really yeah. important to, to talk about the, look, the stresses. And it's, I was on a panel one time with companies that are much larger than mine today. And, and what was interesting is they asked at the end of the, the panel, what keeps you up at night? And the answer was identical for all three of us, even though we're at different stages and different sizes in our companies. For everybody, it was cash flow, it was team management, and it was being on top of what's next and, and being able to, to pivot and deal with all the unknowns that are to come. So I think as much as you know, we see a lot of these entrepreneurs and business owners are out there acting like they have it all together, I don't think anybody has it figured out. And if you do, you're you're stagnating and, and someone's going to come swallow you up in, in no time. So it's, I love that. I think the world is getting a little transparent when, when they talk about those things. Sure. You know, one of the focuses we're working on this year is just advice for whether it's entrepreneur, investor that's buying companies or philanthropist trying to do good in the world, just the idea of more with less and what are, how can you avoid unnecessary work, right? So you guys have got great partnerships, Dell, Pepsi, different, different people you've done stuff. Do you have any ideas about like approaching it with a what's in it for them factor and just, just any guidance you have for getting partnerships with folks that maybe appear not to need us in the first place? I think the greatest skill of successful people is being able to pull the right people up to solve the problem. And you can build amazing solutions if you can get the right parties involved. And it's something we've been really focused on at Hello Alice since we started. We knew if we were going to provide you know, a landscape of equitable entrepreneurship, that's a massive problem. And it requires so many different entities. We have to bring in you know, government entities, and we've got to bring in corporations, and we've got to bring in entrepreneur organizations and the entrepreneurs themselves. And we knew if we were if, that we could solve, you know, we could bring technology to the table to help solve this problem, but it required a lot of systemic change for this thing to happen. And so it never became about us trying to own the solution. It was really about how can we be the convener and how can we get the right people involved? And we can carve out a tiny piece of this. But even then, there's room, frankly, for more. And so we always welcome new players to the table. And I think that mindset has continued to open doors for us because we've always been really collaborative. We've never seen anyone as a competitor. It's the slide I always hate creating whenever we have to raise capital because people are like, give me your competitive landscape. And we lay out these competitors like, but we actually partner with every single person on this page. And so I, I think that whole idea of, you know, they call it co-optition or everybody has different terms for it. But the idea that we are not 
threatened by the other people in the market and you're constantly looking for how do we create value and how do we solve the problem we're trying to solve, I think you're, you're always going to be relevant. And that's what I've always learned with the people that, that stay relevant for long periods of time is that they're not worried about what everybody else is doing and, and what's in it for them. Yeah. So I was listening to one of your interviews and I heard about your, your business partner who had been an entrepreneur in, in residence over at Dell, which is cool. Can you tell us one of the other stories like Pepsi or somebody like this? How how that come about? Almost everything has been through a let's say warm relationship. And then the irony is both Elizabeth and myself did not come from a well-networked world. We went to public schools and a public university and grew up in suburbs and you know small towns in Texas. So, but but I think what we both do very well is we're we're always out networking, we're always talking about the things we're trying to do, and we're always trying to to build these relationships long before we actually, you know, have any frankly purpose or, or mission in what we're trying to do. And so, and so that's helped us. So when we go into companies like Pepsi, it's almost always been through somebody that we know or some opportunity that we've heard of through someone in our in our network. And then referrals. They the great thing about what we do is that you know almost every single one of our corporate clients has referred us to somebody else, either internally at their company because these are such large businesses with a million different divisions, or they're at some conference and they're talking to somebody about some bigger problem and they're like, oh, you have to meet these guys over at Hello Alice. They're doing these amazing things and, and it opens a door for us. Uh, and then we follow up you know, very, very diligently. We do a ton of research. We always you know, reference back to the people that referred us to keep them posted on how it went. And so when they hear the relationship went well and we actually got, you know, are working on a project together, they're much more likely to introduce us to, to people down the road. I'm interested in your thoughts on networking because I, I love networking. I love conferences. I love just, I mean, it's the reason we did 500 episodes of this show is excuse to meet people I wish I knew, right? But I mean, there, but it can be a rabbit hole, right? And you can spend endless time without results. I'm interested, you know, this theme of more with less, how would you apply that to networking? How do you make your decisions of what you are and aren't going to do? That was the biggest struggle at the beginning. We said yes to everything. And I spent so many hours on the road and so many conferences and, and a lot of them, look, I look back on like a ton, a ton of them were dead ends, probably 80% of them were dead ends but 20% of them added value and you start to get smarter over what actually works and what doesn't. And so every year, or frankly, every month, Elizabeth and I sit down and have what we call our meeting of no, but we go through everything that we're working on, everything that's on the calendar and say, okay, over the last month, what was really a value and what wasn't, what did we learn and how are we going to get smarter with our time going forward? And then annually we do a big kind of whiteboarding session over the big things of the year of what really, what really moved the needle for us and what didn't um, and how do we start to just keep chipping away at the list. So our, our, you know, fortunately, I think the thing for us has always been, there's been more opportunity than time in terms of what we're doing. And that only expanded quite a bit this year with the focus on small business and the smoke focus on, on diversity. The hardest thing for us is picking and choosing what are we going to put our, our effort towards. So I think having a, a system around constantly whittling away at that and, and being thoughtful and looking at, you know, again, what are the, the measurements behind what we're doing? Yeah. I'm interested in your criteria. How do you decide the ones that are on the fence? The ones where you're like, oh, maybe. I'm interested in any thoughts you have on those ones. Oh, Elizabeth and I are pushovers too at the end of the day. So we we usually say yes. I think if it's anything, you know, we have we have the business metrics that we're focused on. We're always focused on bringing more owners onto the platform and making sure those owners are engaged and supported. So if there's anything that supports 
an owner's business growing, we almost always say yes. And that means we do a lot of mentor sessions. We do a lot of, you know, speaking opportunities, anything where we can kind of share knowledge and open doors. It's almost always a yes for us. We do look more and more as our team has grown, like, all right, what can somebody else take on that we don't personally need to be there for? So that helps a lot, at least to sort of distributing the time across the team. And then the ones that we're sort of on the fence with, I think it boils down to like, do we have time? And if it's, you know, we both have young children. So that's always the thing too, is we've got to weigh it against, there's always time, but we're like, do we need time with the family or do we need time with the business? And that is a consideration. So it helps us get a little smarter about it, but I think it's a lot of it's subjective and it's just, we sort of make a decision and hope we made the right one. And I'm sure we've missed probably some great opportunities out there because we weren't in the room, but it's also, I have really learned to value white space in my schedule because I know for me, I just work so much smarter when I have you know a day where I have no meetings and I can sit and focus and, and really get my head deep into the weeds of the business. So when you think about that, you know, I, I, it makes me think of like Warren Buffett quotes about it's easy to get rich as long as you have eight hours a day to read and think, right? <laughs> what do your strategies look like to protect that? Are you booking out on your calendar in advance and just saying no? What, what does that look like? Yeah, I totally block Tuesdays and Thursdays on my calendar and they're my no meeting days. Uh, I always end up having a meeting on that day inevitably, but they're intended to be no meeting days. So unless it is something that is absolutely the most important thing in the world and it can't happen any other day, uh, and that usually boils down to like one or two of our core initiatives, it's a no. And then internally, what it allows me to do is take that time. And if there's something on my mind within the company, I'm like, all right, we really need to tackle this one issue. Those are my days when I can just pick up the phone and call somebody and be like, all right, let's sit and spend a couple of hours and dive deep on this. And so that time for me becomes so important, you know, in full transparency, sometimes that day is look, my brain is done and I'm not thinking and I'm not being productive. And I just need to go on a walk or I need to go run some errands or I need to just get a couple of these things off my plate. It gives me the flexibility to do those things so that I can get my head on straight. Sometimes it's cleaning my office. I mean, it can be any number of things, but it's always stuff. I mean, I, I value those two days, frankly, more than any other day on the calendar because it, it, I know that's when the greatest ideas happen and when, when the real differences are made. Yeah. I, I feel like, I feel like that's what got me to start getting up earlier is like getting up and being creative before anybody can call me and email me has just yes. been amazing. I feel like. I'm really fortunate. So, a lot of our team is on the West coast. And so, because I'm central time, I get two hours before <laughs> the, the real meeting craziness starts, at least internally. Uh, so that's kind of my time. I'm not a morning person. Unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a total night owl. So I will stay up. Uh, and typically it happens on those Tuesdays and Thursdays because I've had a little time to get stuff done and I get like really like, just invigorated after dinner, after the kids are asleep and I'll sit sometimes until you know two, three in the morning and just go. So yeah, I think it's always like finding your rhythm and the time that your brain is most effective. Yeah. You know, you brought up a, a subject earlier that I think would be interesting to talk about this idea of getting your first hundred customers. And, you know, maybe this can apply for your, when you're starting your business or maybe when you're just coming up with a new product, but what, what are some of the things that you think about for getting your first hundred customers? I think that is a time to really understand what your target audience values. And, and I, it's less about how much money you're making or what your margins are, or what's scalable or any of those things. It really is a learning opportunity. So when I think about our first, and we're, you know, our, our paying customers are big corporations. So we're definitely we have much fewer than a hundred at any point in time. 
but they're very big contracts, typically you know, half a million to a million dollars in, in value. So oh, I would say our first. And, and if I could just interrupt, for people not familiar with the business model, what are they paying for? They are paying for, essentially, it, it's typically engagement of small business owners for a variety of reasons. For some, it is they have products or services they want to connect with business owners. For some, it is social effort and that they have programs and, and support needs that they're they're putting out from just a, a sort of branding and PR perspective. For others, it is supplier diversity initiatives. It's a variety of things that they're looking for. Some are tracking innovation in their industry. And so what we are doing is helping to make matches that are relevant. It might be that they're looking for a speaker for a panel or they're looking for people for an accelerator program or they're looking for grant recipients. It could be any number of things. Our job is to match those owners with the relevant need when we know there's a, a mutual benefit. Um, and then the other thing we offer are macro analytics and insights. So we never share personal information, but we would say, look, if you're looking at you know the restaurant industry right now, here's what the general sentiment is, or here's how business owners are feeling, or here's where they're succeeding or where they're struggling. And so all of those insights help you know tailor government resources. It helps corporations understand where to put money and effort and time and then it helps entrepreneur organizations. We give it to them for free. Anybody who's supporting entrepreneurs as a nonprofit, just to help understand where they can pour their time and energy and, and resources. Great. And I was interrupting. So you've got these big clients and then. Yeah. So I think, you know, getting your first in all of my businesses, frankly, I would say I've always come from a place where I just say yes, and then we'll figure it out. So many times it's, you know, what do you need? You know, if, if, we hear from business owners that they need access to capital. We're like, all right, we're going to go buckle down and we're going to go find capital for you. And we scour the ecosystem and say, all right, who is sitting with money? Who's trying to give money to entrepreneurs? How do we make a relevant match here? And then let's try to think about, let's make the match. Did it add value? And if it did, then we take a step back and say, okay, how do we actually build a structure and a replicable model around this? Uh, and then how can we automate pieces of that model? And then how can we scale this? And so that I think is the approach, frankly, for any business owner is first and foremost, how are you adding value to those first hundred customers? And then what did you learn from that? And how do you streamline the process of delivery? So I think about this idea of how many mistakes I've made in business by like talking like two of them and then deciding I know everything and going out and trying to sell, right? And, and that's obviously not gotten great results. But when you think about the other direction of like, how do you keep the tail from wagging the dog, right? Of it's like, should we really have this many offerings? Like what, you know, what about focus? How do we, how do we know at what point are we just following them around on their whims versus like sticking to our core strengths? How, how do you navigate that yourself? So at our company, we always say we, we can have no more than three core objectives for the business at any one point in time. And it's really hard, actually, when you start laying out everything that you're trying to do, if you're like, all right, at one, at any one point in time, we should be focused on three things. When we finish one, we'll layer in another. Uh, when we decide one is you know a dead end, we're going to drop it and put something in there. So that's one piece is just getting laser focused. And I frankly, with most business owners, I find that's the problem is they're just trying to do too much. And as small businesses, none of us have a lot of resources. We don't have infinite time. We don't have infinite money. We certainly don't have infinite human capital. So how do we limit what we're focused on? That's number one. The other 
piece is, you know, really time boxing efforts. And so making sure we're not talking to a hundred different owners or a hundred different you know, people within our target audience to get their opinions, but talking to five people and talking to five really diverse people that are really different and come from different walks of life, but sort of fit the same value proposition. How do you take their perspectives and then, and then step back and lay out not what they told you they wanted, you know, in black and white, I think really finding where are the similarities, what am I hearing from them in terms of the goals and outcomes that they want, and then what are their alternatives in the market and how can I provide something better? And I think if you're always focused on the outcome that the person is trying to get to versus the tactics that they're going through, I feel like that's a, a, it's a minor difference, but I think it makes a huge difference in terms of how you approach solving a problem. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I, I got some really great advice on one of these interviews recently about somebody saying, you know, ask them what they want and then ask them to take action because if they won't yes. you know, sign up, they won't pay, they won't whatever then you get a chance to go back and say, okay, what is it about this system that is not attractive enough for you to take the action or, you know, and, and I think for me, sometimes I'm so optimistic. I'm like, oh, they said they would, you know, and I, I want to stop there instead of verifying, will they now take the action? Well, Can you to pull out their wallet is a very, very difficult thing to do. And in fact, with our, for us, I mean, again, we're selling mostly on, on the enterprise side. We very quickly, I mean, our goal is how do we get get to a, a yes or a no as fast as possible. And so we just, we have a conversation and we put a proposal in front of them and it, it makes them, it's amazing because people will talk. We learned early on, I mean, we'll, we would have conversations for six months or a year and we're like, oh, we're just going in circles and we're trying to like figure out what they want and how do we plug in. Once we've just put it on paper and put a proposal in front of them, they would be like, oh, I don't like this or okay, I'm totally on board, but can we change this piece? It really, it gave a framework from which to work. And even for smaller, you know, people selling direct to consumers, like just give them a package, like give them the offering and let them say yes or no. And a no is okay. I mean, you're going to get a lot of no's and, but, but you learn from the no's, like you said. You know, I think about, I think about like my fears of the no, right? Like why, why do I not do that? When, think about all the times that I do that. We just, it looks like we're getting this, our, our one consulting firm, we got this bank that's a $16 billion bank local here. And I've been like cultivating that relationship for like four or five years now. And I was thinking like, now that we're actually getting it, I was thinking like, why did this take so long? What, what, you know, what's going on here? And like, I'm all about like planting seeds and, and, you know, giving them the time to grow. But like, was I fooling myself in the meantime by like nipping at the edges instead of going like, Hey, is this on like long-term let it grow mode? Or am I actively cultivating this? Because if I'm actively cultivating this, we really haven't got to something for the yes and no. And mm -hmm. I think it was because I was feeling desperate of like, oh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to push into the point of getting the no, because until I've got the no, I can still have the hope. And instead, it should take forever, you know? I mean, timing is really important, but I do think, you know, one of the things we did was let, let's get to a no quickly and not be afraid of no. And then, and then still keep them on a pipeline, right? There's still like a path for them. And so we have, I and mean, for us, we always send out monthly updates to anyone we've ever had a conversation with. It's just, hey, here's what's going on. Here's these great stories. Look what we're doing with our other clients. You know, here's this great momentum that's happening in the small business world and keeping them excited about what we're doing. And it's amazing how many of those, particularly over the last 12 months, when everybody was like, how do we help small business owners? All those conversations we've been having, you know, we kept sending our monthly updates out. And so many of those people came back and said, oh my God, we're ready. To, we're, we need to help and we need to do something and give us the plan on how we show up. So it, timing is important for sure. But I think making sure that you're still 
passively in a, in a low maintenance mode, keeping those relationships open. Yeah. You know, when you think about this, you know, 340,000 small businesses or 340,000 plus, what are some lessons that you learned attracting that many folks that maybe you didn't expect? Partnership is so important. Everything we do is is through and with partners. And one of the things that was most important for us was building trust with our owners. And we realized we can't come out. I mean, I am a Latina female from Houston, Texas. I have one experience and I can identify with one tiny segment of our market but I can't identify with all of our market. And so it was important for us to bring in partners that did understand those journeys and could talk in a, in a very trusted way to a lot of our owners. And we learn from them. So we bring in advisors always to say, look, well, how, how do we tackle you know, the problems that the LGBT you know, market is facing? What is really unique to their experiences? And what do you know and what can you teach us so that we can build a better technology to support them? But also how do we turn around and lift up the things that you're doing to support them? And so it's it's creating a genuine and authentic relationship with the people that are trusted by your market so that they can go out and say, look, these guys are really committed over here at Hello Alice. They're, they're not just throwing a technology out and trying to make money off of you and build a business. They actually really care about you growing as an entrepreneur. Uh, and that has made a world of difference for us in terms of attracting more owners, but then we've got to deliver on that promise. And so we are constantly learning from them and saying, look, here's, you know, here's what we tried. Here's what's working. Here's what's not. Give us your feedback. We personally respond. I mean, if anybody on the platform of those 340,000 owners has a direct line into my profile, they can click and communicate with me personally. I do get a ton of emails that way but I respond to every single one. Like I would never not respond to one of our owners. I'm active in the community every single day um, as is most of our team. And so I, I think those little steps make a huge difference. Elizabeth and I do an ask me anything session every single month. We're there for our whole community to talk to. And so even as we grow, I mean, the obviously the time that we can spend with every owner is not the same as when we had a thousand owners on our platform but the door should always be open in some capacity in, in whatever way is meaningful. And not everybody needs that direct line, but a lot of people do, and it should be there if they, if they want it. You know, I, I'm interested when you think about the biggest differences between a hundred people, a thousand people and a hundred thousand people, what are the, what are the biggest differences? You realize, you know, you, you start to see a lot of trends emerge. I think you also realize that the community supports the community in tremendous ways. And so what we're spending a lot of time learning now is how do we bring them in as experts and lift up our own community? We, we used to look so much outside of, okay, how do we find an accountant to come in and support and teach and help now we're like, oh, we have 5,000 accountants on our platform. Like, how do we actually lift them up and give them some exposure and let them teach? So that's been a huge piece is just how do we sort of build the engine and, and step back a little bit and let it go? And then the other component is, is just the systems. And, and, you know, we're starting now to really have to dig into, you know, obviously as we're, as we're moving into a more sophisticated platform and in dealing with much more sensitive data, really following industry best practices in terms of how do we make sure everything is protected, everything is super secure for our owners, the infrastructure becomes much more difficult. Now we've got to make sure that there's, you know, we're monitoring the communities and, and it's not enough for one person to be popping in and checking once a day. We've got to be in there all the time and actually building the technology to, to look for a lot of those things. So it does get more complex, 
I will say though, in the, in the time of, you know, a lot of conversations around social media censorship and, and what is free speech and what is it not, you realize how many tools there are out there. And frankly, it, it shouldn't be as difficult if these technologies were built in a way from the start in the way that they probably should have been, we wouldn't have a lot of the issues that we have today. So there, but there's a lot of learnings, I think, from the experiences of Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram and everything else that, that we're able to benefit from. I'm interested in any thoughts you have for people who are saying like, I've got this community that I wanna build. This is, this is where I wanna go, but it feels crowded already. I'm trying to decide what can I, I'm trying to figure out what I can bring that, that isn't already out there. What kind of principles, what kind of questions do you think people should be asking themselves in a situation like that? When I started Hello Alice, it was about what I needed. And it, it started with me expecting it to be out in the market somewhere. I said, what I want is not that rare. I'm sure other people need it. And I, I just started Googling for it and I couldn't find it anywhere. And it was mind blowing to me. I'm like, here we are. And you know, the the industry of innovation and there's nothing innovative happening. It is, you know, the way venture capitalists are finding deal flow is by word of mouth. And the way organizations are, are spreading these programs that they're doing is all by word of mouth. And why is there no system and infrastructure behind small business? Every other career path has a clear cut path laid out. And for entrepreneurs are sort of thrown out there to figure it out on their own. And so that was the big piece for me that if, you know, if it doesn't exist someone should build it. And if someone should build it, why shouldn't it be me? And, and nobody, frankly, bought into the idea early on, other than my amazing co-founder and, and you know, a handful of investors, and I can like count them literally on one hand, who said, you know, I think you're onto something here. And I, you know, I, I trust that, that you're going to figure it out. Now it's amazing. You know, we're, we're out actually raising our series B right now, just about finished everything has been inbound. We've had investors calling us to invest. It's like a total 180 uh, from those early days. So I, I think it's it's having the patience to stick with what you what you have. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think if you're, again, if you're solving a need in the market, that should be your driving force more than trying to sort of fit something in where it may not necessarily be needed. If there's a lot of noise, let let the market play out. If you think you can do it better, go build it. Yeah, it's it's always the question of like that that thing of like, am I just am I just telling myself this, or is there evidence to support my op my optimism, right? Entrepreneurs are inherently optimistic, right? So we want to believe our own, you know, BS for lack of a better word. Like I think we we convince ourselves, and we're really convincing people. I mean, we're pretty persuasive, I think, as a group. But it's you know that's I think one of the greatest exercises that we push people through early is lay out the greatest risks to your business and work, like take a concerted effort to poke holes in your business model and let others poke holes. When people say they don't want to share their business model, like that is the worst idea. Go tell everybody and tell your most skeptical friend and tell the people that are going to be totally transparent with you, like go look for holes. And if you're hearing the same holes poked in your model consistently and you don't have confidence in it and deep down in your gut, like, you know, either you're confident in the model or you have a, like sort of some nagging questions. If you don't fully buy into the value proposition, nobody else will. You might like slide by for a little while, but you're not going to be the, you know, huge success story that, that you're probably hoping to be. And it's hard. I mean, it, it, it's required all the time. And I think that's where... Setting clear metrics and benchmarks for your company is important because if you don't hit it, and we do this on every campaign, if we say, all right, we're going to go, you know, let's try this, this project. We think it's going to be really great. Here's what we think we're going to get from it. 
if we end up and we're like, oh, we only got half the conversions that we thought we were going to get, we either say, let's revisit it and tweak it and change it, or let's scrap it. And, and there's no pride associated with it. It doesn't matter who came up with the idea or what it was, or like it didn't hit. It's out there for everybody on the team to see. It's black and white. Like it's, there's no debating it. And I think it helps over time because you're like, I don't care. Like nobody holds anything sacred. That's great. You know, you think about this, attracting so many users, winning all these awards, getting invited to speak, having Series B investors find you. You've achieved a lot of success that, that others haven't. What do you think that you've done different than others that haven't achieved what you've achieved? Well, I've been on both sides of the equation. So I will say, I, I don't think it is the person that really determines the situation. I think it's the actions that determine the situation. And the biggest difference for me is that with this company, there was a sense of urgency behind it that I didn't feel with the others and a deep rooted, just personal desire to have an impact in, in ways that I didn't feel with my prior companies. And my second company, I, I sold the business. It was successful by you know kind of public standards, I guess, but in a very different way from this business and in a much I would say less kind of scalable and frankly, financially impactful way. I think the biggest difference is because the consistency and focus with this, like I have never wavered a day on, am I doing the right thing? I wake up excited about what I'm doing. I really love the work that I'm doing. And I also think it's something that's meaningful to the world. So it's very hard for us to pick up the phone and say, Hey, we'd love to have a meeting. We want to talk to you about you know how to help small business owners accomplish their goals and, you know, how to make a more inclusive economy. Not that many people are going to be like, eh, I don't have time for that. Sorry. <laughs> so, so I think because it's such a compelling mission, we're able to get in to a lot of doors that we probably wouldn't otherwise, which, uh, you know, which helps. I, I think about this all the time. And I think people get, people get told all the time, like the secret to success is hard work. And they're always, they're always being told about hard work. Right. And I think, you know, oftentimes having good ideas gets, gets pushed down the list. You know, Thomas Edison, success is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration and stuff like this, right? What, what, with what you just said, one of the things that I feel like gets lost in that sometimes is like, yes, it's true. If you just sit there and dream and you don't execute, you don't get anything, right? But I look at people who pick a model or they pick an industry or they pick an approach that is pushing a, pushing a boulder up a hill, you know, versus something that's naturally magnetic, you know, that has like deep incentives for, hey, we can, this is the kind of business that can afford to pay top talent. This is the kind of business that, you know, is culturally relevant and the CMOs of these businesses won't want to be associated with us, you know, like, right? like, you know, getting into the tobacco industry right now, like, you know, it's, that's going to be a tough, that's going to be a tough push to get a lot of positive press, you know, what I mean? right. So this idea of like positioning and, and choosing well of, of something that to work hard at, sometimes I feel like gets mi over minimized. Any that, thoughts on that? Yeah. The hard part of that is that a lot of it is, is luck, right? I mean, people keep telling us it's funny because everyone, you know, over the past year is like, you're just in the right place at the right time. I'm like, yeah, but we've been here for five years and five years ago, nobody cared about small business and nobody was the better. It was like startups, startups, startups. It's these high growth companies. Nobody cared about the main street company. In fact, we got kicked out of many rooms because we were focused on that audience. But we knew in our heart of hearts, like there is something here. It's the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs. 
the economy needs it, if we're going to grow and we're going to solve these big problems of equity, it all boils down to small business. Like there were so many pieces that just kept pointing us towards this path. And so I, I think we were a little bit ahead of our time, but it set us up for the environment we're in today. And so we were years ahead of, I mean, a ton of people are jumping into the space right now. And we know it is like the floodgates are about to open and there's going to be so many people tackling the problems that we're tackling, which frankly is great. It's wonderful. Bring it on. It'll bring more attention and more resources to it. But it really helped that we were there five years ago because we learned so much in that five years that you know two years from now, we're going to be hopefully way ahead of the people that just came in today. So I think timing is really important. And it's that's the hard part is that when you're hearing a bunch of no's in the early days, is it no because the market's not ready yet and you just need to keep at it? Or is it no because you're not on a, on a good path and you should just jump ship? And I, I think that's where it boils down to just your own intuition saying is, do you see the need? And we always saw the need from our market. They always said, we need this, we want this, we need this, we want this. And that's what kept us going. We're like, we will, we will work late nights. We will scrape the dollars together. We'll forego a salary. We'll do all these things because we know there is a need here. And we know if these entrepreneurs succeed, a bunch of people are going to make money. And if they're all going to make money, we better make money too. And so that's what really kept us moving. I think in ways that when I look at my other companies, I, I don't think there was that sort of bigger purpose and need. Like our clients, you know, my last company, they loved what we did. They found value in it. But if we disappeared off the map, they would have found it somewhere else. Uh, and I think in my first business, I think I was probably pushing a need that they didn't really even feel, which is why it didn't succeed. So I think at the end of the day, it is, does your market value, you know, beyond everything else, what you're, what you're providing? Yeah, that is an interesting test. If we went away, if we went away, can our clients just get this somewhere else? And how sad would they be if we went away? You know, those are, could be hard questions to ask, right? To be honest about at least. Yes. Yeah. And if they, if they, if they aren't sad, they're, you know, you're probably, you're not doing enough, right? you got to think about how do you go, how do you go above and beyond? How do you sort of build in the stickiness and loyalty and the need for what you're providing? I love it. Well, I know we're winding down here and, and obviously I think everybody should go to helloalice.com and sign up for their business and check it out. When you think about this idea of stickiness, what, what's a principle for somebody who realizes, ah, we do need to be more sticky. We do need to be more irreplaceable. It's again, constantly providing value. And then sometimes that means you're going to provide value that doesn't really provide any immediate benefit, but it's providing the, the loyalty component. And so we do things like we're constantly pushing our owners out to other organizations on the ground. It doesn't really serve us any value. We're like, oh, you should connect with this you know, accelerator in your city or go take advantage of this grant opportunity. We get nothing out of that, except that we hope that people will come back next time and say, okay, we found something valuable. I'm going to show up again tomorrow. So that's one piece. I think it's just, again, at the end of the day, if you're, if you're helping people out and that's just in life in general, right? If you're constantly serving others, they're going to show up for you. So I think that's a really important one for, for us. And I totally forgot the question you asked. I'm sorry. I think I like went off on a tangent. (laughs) just, Just a principle, you know, like there's probably not too many business owners that look in the mirror and go like, we're really not providing people value. Right. So when you think about asking ourselves the hard question of, 
what you know what additional value could we come up with that would make us stickier than we are now it's asking your owners or asking your, your audience we in fact we just did at the end of the year an all hands sort of strategic planning session with our entire we invited our entire community to join anybody could show up we had 20 owners that we actually sat and did a, a workshop with and it showed everybody and everybody could see transparently how it was happening but the whole community could join in the chat and jump in and share thoughts and it gave us great feedback on what do they love about what we provide what do they not find any value with about what we provide we would ask them about some features and like I didn't even know that was a feature and so it's insightful for us that if you know 18 of the 20 people that we're asking didn't even know a feature existed probably is that valuable and if we're looking at the chat and know everybody's like yeah I had no idea that was there either and doesn't even sound that interesting to me that gets deprioritized in a major way for us and we can look at our metrics obviously and see look only five percent of our owners use this and the five percent that use it don't really care about it let's let it go on the flip side if they're saying look we all want you know mentorship is something that all of our owners always ask for we don't have a scalable model for mentorship on our platform but we're we're actively looking for ways of how can we fill that either through partners or how do we create the value there, even though we can't do it in a one-to-one mentorship fashion, are there ways we can provide guidance from experts in meaningful ways to our owners? And so that's where you have to get creative about, I might not be able to give you what you're asking for, but I can fulfill the need that you have. I love it. Well, what do you want to close with here? This has been a great interview. I'm close with, it was one of our stats that I'm so excited about. I think we were talking a lot about the pandemic and what's happening with small business owners. And what's so exciting for me is that an overwhelming majority and above 80% of our owners are optimistic about 2021 and the outcomes for their small businesses. Um, so for whoever is listening out there, I think it's a, a great time to go support your local small businesses, um, support your online small businesses. It may not even be local, uh, but I think there there is a, a chance here to really step up and allow all types of entrepreneurs uh, to have the support that they need and, and to open a door for them. And whether you're a business owner yourself uh, or whether you're a consumer, just taking one step today to go help a business out, uh, whether it's with advice, whether it's with dollars, whether it's with you know promoting them. Uh, I hope that everybody does that. And if you need ideas on how to do that, come check us out at, at helloalice.com. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks again for making time for this. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Bye, everyone.